the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Very Long Shadows of Victory, cast by the Sunset of the Gods of the Copybook Heading Apprentices, putting the mass in mass market. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. Hey, we've got the start of a fascinating, massive, and amazing interview with David Weber, talking about his fascinating, massive, and amazing new entry in the Honor Harrington series, Shadow of Victory. This is part one of a three-part interview, an interview that's so much of a blockbuster that it will span two months. So that's coming up. And we also continue with the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. Here's the news. Hey, we often tout the Bain.com monthly contest about this time of month on the podcast. This month we have a doozy, and it has gotten lots of entries. This is the way we worded it at the beginning of the month, and by we I mean copywriter David F. Sherrod. It's election season this November in America, and millions of folks will head to the polls to vote in the presidential race. You may well know who you're voting for, but what if the election were open to a wider range of candidates? Specifically, which Bain book character would you elect president of the United States? Tell us who and why in a short paragraph, a hundred words or less, and be entered to win a signed copy of Michael Z. Williamson's Angel Eyes, the new installment in his Freehold series. So now we know. We know who won. I'm not going to say who, since I don't want to spoil the fun of finding out for medieval time travelers who happen to be listening to this podcast from the past. But the contest at Bain.com is still open and will be until November 25th, a very auspicious date in the history of this republic, I must say. So if you are okay with the election, or if you wish you could join those street protests against the winner, but because you are a Bain reader, actually have a job as a productive citizen and haven't got the time to get out there at the moment, send in your entry for a Bain book character you would vote for for Prez, and a few sentences explaining why. The entries will be subject to the Bain Editorial Electoral College, and the winter will get Angel Eyes by Michael Z. Williamson, which honestly is probably a more enjoyable prize than the presidency anyway. Details are on the main page at Bain.com, so go ye there and let your opinion of Bain character greatness be heard across the stars. This is part one of a three-part interview with David Weber discussing his new Honor Harrington novel, Shadow of Victory. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. I want to welcome David Weber back to the podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Tony. So David Weber is the creator of the internationally best-selling Honor Harrington series and the Honorverse. Uh, David's Honor Harrington science fiction novels have sold millions of copies over the years. David is also the author of many, many other Bane books, including Epic Fantasy, uh, Bazel series entry like The Sword of the South, which uh, starts a, a new 
sub-series within that series. It's a, it's a great book. That's coming out uh, very soon in uh, Mass Market, by the way. He's the co-author of lots of books, too, with Timothy Zahn and Thomas Pope. He's the creator of the Manticore Ascendant series. That's an honorverse book, including Call to Duty and A Call to Arms. And lately with Joel Presby, he's uh, continued his multiverse science fiction and fantasy blend series with uh, book three, The Road to Hell. David has had, I think, Marley counted, 28 New York Times bestsellers. And there are over eight and a half million David Weber books in print. The latest entry in the Honor Harrington series is a solo novel by David Weber. That book is Shadow of Victory and is now at booksellers everywhere. So in the two previous books in the main Honor Harrington series, David, uh, A Rising Thunder and Shadow of Freedom, the Talbot Sector, which is a big part of the, I, I guess it's, I'll ask you about this. The Verge is the outer ring of the Solarians. All right. The Talbot Sector was an upheaval, and Manticore was pulled in by um, in a, a Mason alignment plot, and we mainly Admiral Goldpeak was our... Uh, was, a, was one of our heroines in that one. Meanwhile, in the Crown of Slaves trilogy that you wrote with Eric Flint, um, Victor Zilwicky and, and uh, Nanton Zilwicky and Victor Chakot exposed the alignment's perfidy. Um, and is Shadow, Shadow Victory seems to be where these two series are converging. Am I right with that? Um, more or less. Uh, okay, let me backtrack just a little bit and here. And correct anything, yes, please. <laughs> I just said. Yeah. But what the Talbot sector, which is now the Talbot quadrant, did was to turn the star kingdom of Manticore into the star empire of Manticore because of Talbot's voluntary association with uh, Manticore, which stemmed largely from Talbot's disinclination to be ingested by the Solarian League and the Transstellar Corporations that, that exploit their economies. Um, one thing I think some people may have missed um, on, on the way in is that it's not just the Transstellars which are exploiting their economies, that in fact that's a secondary effect of the deliberate policy of the bureaucrats who run the Solarian League because of the way that the Solarian Constitution is established, uh, there is a specific provision which was designed to keep the government from becoming some sort of behemoth, which precludes them from charging taxes. The only way that they can fund government operations is by charging service fees for maintaining uh, deep space traffic control, uh, policing economy, uh, the economy, uh, uh, export and import fees, uh, etc. And the the reason it was set up that way is that the Solarian League was really intended to be more of a trade association, uh, more of uh, uh, a common market than a European Union, if if I may use that analogy, that got out of hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and has no effective elective political oversight. It's basically run by the permanent bureaucrats who, do, who never have to face the electorate and can always hide behind the elected officials who they theoretically are subordinate to. So the 
none of these individual fringe systems that the Office of Frontier Security is helping to protect from themselves um, is actually uh, a huge source of revenue. But collectively, they are something like a third of the Solarian government's total revenues. So when potential sources of revenue start going over to the Star Kingdom of Manticore, this is upsetting uh-huh. the, to, the, to the, the regulators running the league. So it's kind of a, a, a parasitic relation between or crony capitalism or something like that or crony socialism kind of uh, relationship between these transstellar corporations and the Solarian League uh, bureaucracy. Yeah, I mean... They're all one of a kind or of a kind. Uh, get, get it. The transstellars get a huge sweetheart deal. And they peel off maybe eight, ten percent of their sweetheart profits to help finance the system that provides the other eighty to ninety percent of sweetheart profit to them. Okay, so it's you know it's not it's it's almost more of a symbiotic than a parasitic relationship from the perspective of the league government and the bureaucrats who run it and their transstellar buddies, all right? Now, the, um, the, the reason that Talbot was able to seek annexation by the Star Kingdom is the discovery of another terminus of the Manticore and Wormhole Junction in very close proximity to the Talbot sector. It's not quite inside it. In fact, the star system that it's closest to which is the closest inhabited star system, which is the system of links, is not part of the Talbot Quadrant. It is part of the core star kingdom of Manticore because it can be reached almost instantaneously via the the junction, and the Talbot Quadrant cannot. It is within easy travel through normal hyperspace, but there is still going to be a significant delay, I think it's about 10 days, in the turnaround of messages between the Quadrant and the Star Empire. So the Quadrant was organized uh, basically in what you might call a federalized uh, uh, model and has autonomy in several areas and is basically a, uh, a subunit. Of the, of the Star Empire with representation in the new mm-hmm. Imperial Parliament and so forth, but with its own quadrant parliament to handle local affairs. However, this wormhole junction, the Lynx terminus of the junction, is also only about 150, 200 light years from Mesa. And Mesa is the home of the Mason Alignment, which has been planning for four, five, six hundred years to basically um, overthrow the League and establish a new interstellar power under its aegis that will be able to advance its uh, platform, its program of systematic genetic uplift of the human race. They want to establish Humanity 2.0 that's that's going to be uh, extremely stratified, just horrible society, right? I mean, they're the bad guys. Well, Although not anybody in a David Weber novel is nuanced if they're a bad guy. but Well, I try, because bad guys usually are in real life. But mm-hmm. the, the, the um, 
you can think of the Alpha Line um, members of the Mason alignment as the vanguard of the genotype uh, in, in kind of uh, in, in parallel with the vanguard of the proletariat under Marxism. They are the group which will naturally provide leadership to the rest of, of humanity until the rest of humanity catches up with their modifications. But like all the other lines, the alpha lines will be constant, will be subject to constant tweaking and improvement, and therefore the gap will never close, and therefore we will perpetuate the alpha lines control of, of the human race in general, because obviously it is quantifiably genetically superior to anybody else. Uh, I mean, it's not going to be like the bogus, uh, uh, hocus-pocus racism, uh, uh, scientific racism of the 19th and the early 20th century. This is going to be, look, we got the two genotypes side by side. This alpha guy has 50 more points of IQ than you do. He's going to live 15 years longer than you are, et cetera. It's going to be a quantifiable difference. And that's one of the reasons that people like... Um, Beowulf, where Honor's, Honor Harrington's mom is from, have been so bitterly opposed to this type of genetic improvement for so long because they see it as constituting the re-emergence of racism, which has been pretty much wiped out by this time. I mean, we're 2,000 years down the road. Okay, racism is not really a factor. Instead, you know, the racist sentiment is largely focused on the genetic slaves which have been produced by manpower and are considered to be genetically off the reservation, not quite human by a lot of people. Um, but the the focus of the Mason alignment for many years was the uh, Republic of Haven, because what it was worried about was an existing, vibrant power center outside the League, which would pose competition to their effort to build a new polity on the ruins of the Solarian League, if you follow me. Mm-hmm. And for for 150 years, that was the Republic of Haven. And the Republic of Haven took this, uh, this, this really ugly left turn uh, as the result of uh, a deal between corrupt politicians and corrupt machine political uh, vote managers, the dolus managers. Many people think that in structuring what happened to the uh, to the Republic of Haven, I was saying that any form of social assistance for any citizen inevitably leads to the collapse of all civic virtue, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you go back and look, it was a de- it was it was the result of self serving politicians manipulating the system that created the disaster known as the People's Republic of Haven. It wasn't the inherent desire to provide for all members of a society a decent living, good medical care, a decent education, even if this requires state intervention at some levels. It was the way in which that intervention was manipulated and twisted for the political ends of a specific group 
that created the People's Republic of Haven. And what the galaxy at large doesn't know is that quite a bit of that manipulation was the result of input from the Mason Alliance working behind the scenes deliberately to destroy Haven as this vibrant uh, renaissance uh, economic power. And unfortunately for their plans, Haven got into a shooting war with the Star Kingdom of Manticore, and the Star Kingdom of Manticore basically, even though it hasn't realized it for a while, could kick the Solarian League's military butt totally, solely by itself. Um, and I think even some of the readers maybe haven't figured out yet. I don't know. Uh, the, that that And if they haven't, they're in good company because there's a bunch of folks in the Solarian League who haven't figured it out either. Um, that despite the huge size of the Solarian League and its ability to absorb incredible damage and rebuild, etc., Manticore by itself, before the Masons launched their sneak attack that destroyed so much of its orbital industry, all by itself, Manticore could have defeated everything the Solarian League had militarily, uh, simply because of the quantum leaps in military technology and, and warfighting capability that 20 years of fighting the People's Republic has brought about. But the Mason alignment did realize that Manticore represented this this existential military threat to its plans. And then we see the Talbot Quadrant blooming over here, and all of a sudden Manticore also becomes a threat to the Alignment's intention of building a new political center that will be, be created primarily as a defensive measure after the collapse of the Solarian League. The idea is that we will band together uh, a few star systems at a time uh, and to, to sort out the chaos, to form a new and more perfect union, et cetera, et cetera, then this will gradually become the competing power center for what's left of the Solarian League. Well, now, all of a sudden, if Manticore is going to add like 20 star systems in one whack, Manticore clearly is a significant threat as a competing political power. So they have all kinds of reasons to want to take the Star Kingdom down a peg. And it's also why uh, the Mason Alignment tried systematically to undermine and prevent the Talbot Quadrant from voting to join uh, the Star Kingdom in the first place, uh, which led to the events in um, Shadow of Saganami which were really the first book that focused yeah, yeah. on the Talbot Quadrant oh, sorry, the, the, coming out of it. The the action in the Crown Slaves books is, is in the area called The Verge, that, and it's on Mesa as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, oh, there, in okay. Shadow of Freedom, I mean, Shadow of Victory, Shadow of Freedom, sorry, uh, is those are Verge planets that are rebelling against the, the transstellars that have, Got in control of their economy, or the or, or the Solarian League's heavy-handedness. Yeah, well, well, well. Okay, basically, the the Solarian League and its areas of influence. Okay, the Solarian League is kind of like China was in its worldview before Western, but probably still is. Really, I mean, because that kind of 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 concept of who you are and what you are is programmed into the DNA of, of nations and, and of self-recognized national groups. But 
China was the center of the world. Everything else was a, a, a periphery attached to China. I think some people would like to see America that way these days, um, and they've usually gotten us into a lot of trouble when, <laughs> when they tried to do that. Uh, but the Solarian League has genuinely seen the galaxy, the explored galaxy in that light for at least the last three, four centuries with some justification given the sheer size and economic power and so forth of the League. The League just hasn't realized how many rats are crawling around in the woodwork, and they also haven't realized that those weird guys with the round eyes and the sailing ships and the cannon are about to overturn their comfortable view of themselves as undisputed master of all they survey. So within the Solarian League's view of the, of the, the, the diaspora of humanity, you have the core worlds, which are the oldest, most populous, most powerful individually star systems, uh, almost all of whom, not all of whom at this point, but almost all of whom were founding members of the League. And then you have what they call the Shell, and those are uh, star systems which are what we would think of today as first world nations uh, within the within the the, um, the Solarian League. They have that degree of economic and military, well, not so much military because they belong to the League, but economic and political clout of first world nations that are also states in a federal system. There's not an exact analogy that we can use from Earth's politics. But beyond the shell is the verge. And the verge is where you have the more sparsely populated. Um, uh, and when we say sparsely in the honorverse, we may be talking about, you know, four, four billion people is sparsely populated because with honorverse technology, the entire star system is available to you, including orbital habitats and industry and the whole nine yards. Um, but that's what the fringe is, and the and what what frontier security has been doing for quite some time is gradually extending the Solarian League's tentacles out into the fringe, sort of sucking up one star nation after another uh, as as soon as there's a pretext for them to move in with basically the blue helmets uh, to to uh, to restore order and so forth. And then, of course, they will withdraw as soon as the local star system has compensated the, the, the federal, the, the, the Solarian League for its expenses since it doesn't have a tax base. It has to charge user fees, so it will charge them user fees. And as soon as it gets everything paid down, of course, they'll hand the system back over to them. But it's kind of like owing money to the company store. Uh, you can't pay it down. It's structured that way. The principle always increases. And so you are, in effect, in perpetual debt slavery uh, to, the, to OFS. And OFS, in turn, greases the skids for the transnationals, the, trans, the transstellars in this case, to come in and exploit the star systems as well. But don't think that all of the folks who are doing the exploiting are solarians or even have anything to do with frontier security. Uh, you also have uh, star systems with uh, ingrained uh, uh, elites 
who are just as manipulative of the their citizens as the Solarian League would be of the of the star system as a whole. These are kind of like the uh, the kleptocracy you see in a lot of second and third world countries. The the uh, the people who are close close enough to the seats of political power that they control the levers of political power, and they manipulate the system for their own and their family advantage. And so, even if you have a star system that would never oh no, we have no aristocracy in this star system, we're a democracy. What they frequently are is in fact a a facade democracy. Um, And instead of dukes and earls, they have presidents and CEOs. Um, And this is is not just me uh, dealing with my paranoia. (laughs) This is actually based on on human behavior time after time. Um, I mean, one reads most a lot of your books, and you you don't base them directly on history, but there's there's all kind of historical precedents that you're bringing in, and it seems clear that that there are um, some comparisons being made. Well, it's 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 less it's less direct comparisons than it is. Uh, uh, my understanding, based on having, I, I fell in love with history in the fifth grade. Okay, and in the fifth grade, um, I was only 10 because I was five when I started school. So that would have been 54 years ago. So I spent a half century century in love with history. And if you ever are unfortunate enough to be trapped in the room with me at a convention, <laughs> you, you may find that out. But the the what that has given me is, sure, I've got this incredible horde of political uh, analogies that I can pull out. But what it's done more than that is to give me a feel for the process by which decisions are made and by which, in which societies move. And one thing that history will tell you is that human nature today is very much what it was at the time of Thucydides. Um, the, 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 the political matrix, the particular matrix in which uh, that human nature may express itself has changed immeasurably. But the individual motivations and the individual tendencies, if you sat down at one, if, if if you went to the Peloponnesian War and you sat down in one of the city-state assemblies and listened to the the discussion, the politics going back and forth, looked at the political cabals being formed and so forth, a machine politician from Chicago would feel right at home. Okay, I'm mm-hmm. just saying, um, and that translates into my view of what humanity is going to be like in the future as well. Um, and it's kind of like one thing that I think is absolutely true is is Heinlein's view on what happens when somebody decides they ain't going to study war no more. Uh, if you go back to, I, I think actually Tolkien said it very well when he has Eowyn say those who do not have swords can still perish upon them. Um, And that's kind of where the the Star Kingdom and now Star Empire of Manticore is. They never wanted to be a military superpower. King Roger, who started the build-up, which allows the the uh, the 
solarian, allows the star empire to survive when it finally does have to go toe-to-toe with this huge, uh, relatively speaking, uh, People's Republic of Haven, never wanted to go to war. He simply saw no alternative that wasn't worse than going to war for the subjects that, who, whose lives he was responsible for, the citizens whose lives he was responsible for. And that really, I think, informs um, probably the majority of the Weberonian good guys. Uh, it's not that they want to go to war. It's that they don't see an alternative. And I do find uh, nobility in people who voluntarily choose to be, you know, as as Heinlein said, you know, greater love hath no man than a mother cat dying to defend her kittens. Um, The the individual who is willing to, to take that onus, that willingness to be our our scapegoat in many regards and do the dying for us to preserve the things that we believe are important. I find a certain inherent nobility in that. Now, do I think they're all saints? Hell no, I've known too many of them. Okay. But I think that they are, they're George Orwell. Okay. You know, this is a paraphrase, but he said, we can, we sleep we sleep soundly in our beds tonight because rough men stand ready to do violence in our name. Um, and that, unfortunately, is is true today. It's as true as it was at the time of Thucydides. It's just the power blocks are bigger and the consequences, if you lose, may be even worse. Um, but it hasn't changed. Yeah. And it hasn't changed in the honor of Earth either. Well, that's the way in which history really informs what I'm doing. Although, I will admit, I will admit, I deliberately used the French Revolution as a red herring where the People's Republic of Haven was concerned. I deliberately threw in all kinds of allusions to the to the French Revolution and character names and that kind of thing that made them, oh, here comes Napoleon, here comes Napoleon. And everybody thought it was going to be Esther McQueen, and then I killed her. And they're like, wait. Wait, where did Napoleon go? And they never saw Tom Theismann coming as Cincinnatus instead of Napoleon, as the guy who was going to say, you know what, I really am going to restore the system that worked for 300 years. Well, you gave... uh, Without taking power myself. You you have an alternate French Revolution that worked, kind of, actually. If if they got it George Washington instead of uh, Napoleon, perhaps. Well, uh, because what you actually got was somebody who who undid the 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 the, what? Okay. Well, I I mean, coming in after the the bad stuff of the anyway, perhaps not a good. One other thing thing I should say is that the guys who Theismann came in and basically overthrew. To recreate, to, to to bring the the original constitution of the Republic of Haven back, actually did a lot of good for the, the for, for reinvigorating the the economy and the educational system really of the Republic of Haven. It's just that they did it by sailing down rivers of blood to accomplish their goals. And 
whether it would have been possible to go another way, we will never know, um, because they didn't choose that route. You, you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, maybe that's that nuanced villains thing that you're talking about, but Robespierre never wanted to kill millions, hundreds of thousands, millions of people in pursuit of his own reform goals. He found himself in the saddle of a hungry tiger that eventually did devour him. Um, And Theismann is the guy who was able to come in and basically shoot the tiger and then build on the ruins of what Pierre did manage to accomplish. Um, I don't know if you can tell or not, but there's a huge amount of subtext to what's going on in these books that is firmly established in my mind, Um, a lot of which, despite my infamous info dumps, never gets officially shared with the readers. I mean, it's it's there and it informs my characters' actions. And in that respect, it's totally accessible to the reader. But a lot of it runs in the background. And it gives consistency to what my characters and my political units are doing, even if the reader who recognizes the consistency doesn't understand everything involved in creating it. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, it sounds like that that it's it's part of your subconscious creation project process just to to have this um, this worldview that you formed. I, mean, I guess that's true with all artists, um, writers. Oh, it, it's true. It's tr- it's true of all writers. I think um, I have had uh, to make a lot more in the way of uh, copious notes to myself uh, over the last five, six books, uh, much more detailed. You have a consulting group that helps you. Well, that's true. But you should should see my established timeline for the honorverse at this point. I mean, it says, Courier Boat Departs, Manticore for Spindle, blah, blah, blah. And then I go ahead and I enter, Courier Boat for Manticore Arrives Spindle at the appropriate time because the communications loops involved are such that I have to do that to keep track of what's happening simultaneously in multiple places. And that's been one reason for the way in which some of the books cover the same time period from different perspectives because the 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 delay in information turnaround and so forth means that we're operating in conjunction with but isolated from one another in terms of the Talbot Quadrant and what everybody thinks of as the main front, which is now Beowulf, the Beowulf terminus of the um, of the Manticore Wormhole Junction because Beowulf uh, was a founding member of the Solarian League and uh, seceded from it to ally itself with Manticore. And they're right. That will be the people who see that as the as the decisive primary front are right in a lot of ways. But over on the secondary front, the home planet of the Mason alignment, uh, which uh, is uh, is the puppet master pulling so many strings throughout the Solarian League, um, 
has just had a visitation um, by certain people in Manticore in uniform, and even at uniform, who don't much care for the Mason alignment. What you were describing is it's there's a powder keg that's brewing on the on the out in the edges of the Slarian League, and and it, the, it's really uh, a rotten system. Um, and the fuse, let's, uh, to talk about one of the uh, characters in the book, probably not the main hero, but a main character in the book, and somebody I know you like as a character is uh, Damian Harahop. Um, oh yeah, and I've got some of my fans like I understand why I like that guy's responsible for the death of <laughs> millions, hundreds of millions of people, and that's really not fair. Okay, he just misunderstood. Uh, <laughs> Damien Harahap is uh, sort of, in many ways, a um, a Solarian Victor Kasha. Um, he is um, comes from a totally different place. Victor is is motivated by this um, absolutely incandescent, unyielding commitment to his core principles. Um, as they are represented in the resurgent Republic of Haven. And he's prepared to kill however many people he has to, to to protect those things that he holds as his fundamental core principles. Damien came uh, from a system in which the only way out of the miserable conditions of his family's life was to be co-opted by the system. Um, and as such, he is this, he's frankly uh, uh, a brilliant guy. Uh, he's, he's, he's got, he's, in many ways, he's a polymath, um, even though he doesn't think of himself that way. Uh, he is, he is, he's like an absolute chameleon when it comes to, to infiltration and whatnot. Um, he is, he, he clearly understands uh, how, how the, the people that he's working with and the people who are his targets think. Uh, he's capable of great empathy, even with people who he is ultimately working to, to, for all intents and purposes, destroy. But I think one thing that some people miss when they're looking at Damien in this book is the original plan. He, he's co-opted. Okay, let's, okay. He's co-opted by the Mason alignment in addition to having been part of the Solarian League because he is essentially loaned to the Mason alignment by a corrupt sector governor uh, to help in the effort to destabilize the Talbot quadrant before it Talbot sector before it votes to join the the um, the Star Empire. And when that expo- when that operation blows up, there are a lot of people who want to kill Damien because they're tidying up loose ends that could lead the investigation back home in the Solarian League, which what happened in the Talbot sector and at Monica was so egregious that even the Solarian League had to take... It's like, oh, wait, those battle cruisers that our transstellar friend here scrapped for reclamation somehow wound up in the hands of a rogue star nation with all of their original hardware and software still on board. This is like 
yes, we're going to break up the uh, aircraft carrier enterprise when it reaches the end of its service life. But what we're really going to do is give it a new reactor, put new planes on it, and sell it to to uh, uh, Syria. <laughs> okay, that's what these guys did. And so even the Solarian League has to take cognizance of that, and there have to be consequences for somebody. And the somebody's in question would really prefer that it's not them, and they see killing Damien as a way to help bury their tracks. So he can't remain uh, an operative of the Solarian Gendarmerie, which is their, um, for want of a better term, it's their paramilitary police organization. Um, and so he signs on full-time with the Mason alignment. He, he needs somewhere to go, and they're offering him the most money. Um, so he winds up working for the Mason alignment in something called Operation Janus. And Operation Janus is a Mason op with multiple objectives. It's primarily directed at the Star Kingdom of Manticore. And its first and primary uh, uh, purpose is to create a perception in the Solarian League that the Star Empire is pursuing a policy of deliberate imperialism out in the fringe, that the expansion into Talbot wasn't an accident, that it was part of a planned, long-standing uh, Manticoran uh, agenda. The reason for that they want to establish that is that it causes the, the, the mandarins, the bureaucrats who run the Solarian League, to panic when they think that Manticore is setting out to systematically deprive it of its funding sources in, in the fringe. And it also sets the stage to demonize Manticore in the eyes of the Solarian League public when Mason uh, and government propagandists deploy all of the, the, I'm sorry, deploy, they don't deploy, they, they portray all of the carnage and the bloodshed resulting from Solarian policy as being the consequences of Manticoran policy. It's to make the Mantis the bad guys in the eyes of of uh, the Solarian public. But it goes further than that, because essentially what Operation Janus is, is a bunch of Mason operatives, <clears throat> one of whom, and arguably the most effective of whom, is Damien Harahap, who present themselves to groups in systems where, star systems where the political and economic structure is especially oppressive. These agents present themselves as representatives of Manticore. And they say, you know, we are at war with the Solarian League, and it would therefore obviously be beneficial for us to, like, divert Solarian attention, etc. We like you guys, um, so we will support you in your effort to overthrow the local kleptocracy or kick OFS out of the system or shoot the local transstellar and take over its, its ill-gotten gains, etc., to the extent that we will also provide naval support to protect you if the Solarian Navy tries to, to put down your, your domestic revolt. And they're promising this to these people, 
and giving them communications links back to Manticore that actually go back to Mesa or go nowhere at all. And the objective here from the Mason perspective is to get these people to rise in rebellion, call for Manticore support, and then not get it. And the object is to discredit the, 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 the Star Empire in the eyes of members of the fringe themselves to portray Manticore as being willing to promote a revolution that it knows is going to get thousands or even millions of people killed as a cold-blooded ploy that it has no intention of honoring its promises or anything else. This is solely, we're throwing you into the path of the Solarian League to divert them from us. That's how they want it to be seen. Um, and the object there is to make it to, to turn the fringe against Manticore. Obviously, it will make Manticore look even worse to the people in the Solarian League who think of them as conniving Machiavellian expansionist imperialists. It'll make them look even worse. But the other thing that it will do is Manticore enjoys this reputation of being a star nation of its word. If it tells you it will do something, it will do it, which is one reason it doesn't make a whole lot of interstellar obligations, because it plans to fulfill any that it makes, and everybody knows it. So a Manticoran promise of naval support is, is it's, it's, it's gold in the bank uh, as far as the plan, persons planning these revolts are concerned. And Mesa wants to turn all that gold into lead so that the Star Empire won't be able to continue growing on the one hand, and on the other hand, the Star Empire will not be the attractive alternative to the Renaissance faction, which is the group of star systems that Mesa is planning to use as the core of its new solar polity. So Damien is basically being sent to communicate with these revolutionary groups and to promise them support. So, And by the way, to provide support right up to the moment they call for naval intervention. They're smuggling in small arms. They're smuggling in heavy weapons. Uh, you know, Damien is really and truly substantially increasing the odds that these local resistance movements will succeed. Now, he's not necessarily moving the needle far enough to make it likely for them to succeed. And ultimately, if Operation Janus works, even if they do succeed, Frontier Security of the Navy will simply move in to reverse their success. So ultimately, most of these star systems that he is helping are going to be screwed over, even if their revolt succeeds. But Damien hopes most of them will succeed, and he uh, actually points out to his superiors that from Operation Janus's perspective, it would help for some of these operations to succeed because that increases the stature of the Manticoran threat in the perception of the Solarian government and the Solarian public. Damien actually wishes most of the people he's working with well, and he has this sort of, of mild regret that it's not going to end well for them but he's, his thinking is, in part, if I don't do this, someone else will.
That was part one of a three-part interview with David Weber, author of Shadow of Victory. Part two will appear next time on the podcast. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyberspy Adele Mundy? The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. Daniel followed Hogg through the wedge-shaped doorway of the chapel and stutter-stepped before he regained his stride. He really disliked the habit of some people to stop in doorways with others, with Daniel himself behind them. But the sudden wash of peace that came over him had almost made him do the same thing himself. The room was not a rotunda, though the interior floor plan was round. Daniel looked at the ceiling as he walked down the aisle toward the table at the far end. The roof sloped upward to a central tower covered with a frosted skylight. The sides glowed blue, and the metal tracery which strengthened the translucent panels flowed in curves which were themselves soothing. The tall windows between the wall buttresses were of colored glass. Most of them gave the interior a feeling of the blue depths of the sea, though there were swirls and blotches from the whole spectrum visible when Daniel looked directly at the panels. The wall opposite the entrance was red in emphasis, but the light through it was nonetheless peaceful. This is the most lovely building I've ever been in, Daniel said to Brother Altgeld. Altgeld smiled. It was a very peaceful spot from the beginning, the coordinator said. Our records say that was the reason the chapel was built here. The table at the base of the central aisle was rectangular. Murciello was presumably the man in an alliance dress uniform with the hollow stars of a colonel on his shoulder boards. He had appropriated one end of the table, and Captain Hockner sat to his right on the long side nearer the entrance. Simona and Tibbs, each with an aide, the regimental aide wore a Pantellerian major's service uniform, were both on the opposite long side. Adele was seated on the right end of the near side, and Sister Rennie was beside Hockner. Daniel started toward the seat between Rennie and Adele. Please take the end spot, Captain Leary, Oltkeld said in a clear voice. We're gathered to hear your proposals. That place will allow you to address all the principles without turning your head. I'm not here to listen to somebody telling us to make nice-nice with the Pantellerian oppressors because they're friends of Cinnabar, Murciello said. He glared in challenge at Daniel. The room's acoustics were excellent. Daniel chuckled as he took the place offered to him, but he put his hands on the back of the chair instead of sitting down. As best I know, he said cheerfully, 
My government doesn't have a position on whoever's in charge on Pantelleria or Coursera, more to the point. Certainly I don't. I'm here as an entrepreneur, I suppose you'd say. Nobody at the table spoke. Beyond them, the ranks of curving benches would seat about 600 people. Most of the spaces were filled. Apart from the normal creaks and shuffling of a large gathering, the spectators might have been miles away. Now, I've got a military background, as I'm sure you know, Daniel said. But it doesn't take an expert to see that the present stalemate is ruining Coursera. You're shipping about half the copper that you were before the Pantelarians landed, and your prices are lower as well because of the perceived risk in case Pantelaria tries to enforce a real blockade. They won't, said Captain Simona. Perceived risk, Captain, Daniel said. The reduced prices are a matter of record, as you can check as easily as I, as Adele, did. Murciello muttered something under his breath, but no one interrupted again. The quickest way to break the stalemate in a good way, good for independent Coursera, that is, is to get anti-ship missiles from Karst, Daniel said. And the best way to do that is to get your envoys back from the jackleg pirates holding them and execute the deal which those envoys have already negotiated. He grinned at his listeners. You won't do better the next time, he said. And the folks ruling Karst may well be having second thoughts already. I've dealt with them, remember? We can't get the envoys back, Murciello said. Those idiots on Ischia want us to gut the country, give away the next twenty years. It's not that bad, said Tibbs, glaring at Murciello like a bright-eyed bird. They want the carrying trade, but their prices. They want the trade, Karst wants the trade, everybody wants a piece of us, Murciello said. He slammed his fist on the table. Well, they're not going to get it. Colleagues, Daniel said. I think... Murciello, you were a police sergeant on Pantelleria before you decided to take Alliance money to beat up miners here, said Captain Simona. Prospering as a thug doesn't make you a statesman. You can shut your gob now, you stuck-up prick, Murciello said, lurching to his feet. Hockner was standing also. He'd found a replacement for the pistol Hogg had taken away. Now he unbuckled his holster flap with his left hand and put his right on the butt. A transformationist from the nearest benches gripped the back of Hockner's neck with one hand. He twisted his wrist up with the other. The pistol clanked to the floor. Hockner tried to turn but couldn't. His face was turning purple, a combination of strain and fury. The man holding him was easily in his fifties and didn't look particularly strong. But Hockner wasn't going anywhere. The transformationist's face was calm and expressionless. I wonder what he did before he found God, Daniel thought. Altgeld touched the point of Hockner's hip. Please sit down, Captain, he said. We take seriously our promise to keep all our guests safe. You certainly saved Hockner's life, Daniel thought. If Hogg or Tovera had stopped the garrison officer, it would have been messier and quite permanent. Sit down, Hockner, Murciello said, dropping back into his chair. He was angry, but he kept his eyes on the table in front of him. He must have realized that there were hundreds of people in the room with him, and scarcely a soul would mind if he were strapped to the conference table and flayed alive. Hockner sat down beside Brother Altgeld. The man holding him moved back to the bench. He was so nondescript that Daniel wasn't sure he could tell the fellow from those seated to either side of him. Tovera is pretty colorless also, come to think. 
I understand your qualms about paying extortion to Ischia, Daniel said. Apart from anything else, you can't give both Ischia and Karst the same thing, and getting your envoys back won't help unless you have the missiles also. Everyone was looking at him. They looked like fish coming to the surface of a pond when they expect to be fed. Therefore, Daniel said, I propose to gain the release of the envoys by my own efforts. I don't require any financial contribution from Coursera before or after the fact, but I want your agreement to ratify my actions if that becomes necessary. I want it clear that I'm not a pirate. He wasn't lying, but he was allowing his listeners to believe things that he hadn't said. For most of the parties, it didn't matter, though, as a matter of course, Daniel didn't like to discuss his plans with people who had no reason to know except their curiosity. Murciello and Hockner were another matter. It was important that they believed Daniel was going to attempt the impossible. Just how do you plan to do this? Murciello said. I don't think you can. You may be correct, of course, Colonel, Daniel said. But in that case, you haven't lost anything. I mean you personally and the independence movement also. As for my plans, he looked around the table again, still smiling. I'll say that I hope to release the hostages without violence, but I will use any means which the usage of the civilized galaxy deems to be proper for dealing with pirates, as the Ischians have shown themselves to be. There was silence. Murciello still glowered, but there was a cunning look beneath his hostility. It appears to me that an attempt to free the prisoners by violence, said Altgeld, may cause the Ischians to execute them. Or indeed, that the prisoners may be killed in the attempt? Daniel nodded. Yes, he said, those are certainly possibilities. War has risks, life has risks, but I point out, he deliberately shaped his expression and tone on the stern models his father had used when urging the Senate to take a difficult course because the alternatives were worse. But if you don't achieve the return of the prisoners, the Ischians will offer them to Pantelleria. In fact, I'm surprised that this hasn't happened already, and the Pantellarians will certainly execute them as traitors. Leary's right, said Administrator Tibbs. We have nothing to lose. Captain Simona nodded and said, Yes, Leary's offering the best chance we've had to get our people back and maybe to win this war. Go ahead, I say. Altgeld looked at the garrison commander. Colonel Murciello, he said, are you willing for Captain Leary to make the attempt under the auspices of the Independence Council? Murciello's face worked with suppressed anger. All right, waste your time, Leary, he said, but it is a waste of time, you know. Then I believe we're done here, Altgeld said. He and Rennie got to their feet. All of you are welcome to stay with us as long as you like. No one will try to convert you, though I'll warn you that our community here is a very pleasant place to remain. Adele was putting away her data unit. Thank you, said Daniel. I need to prepare the ship for liftoff. The sooner we start, the sooner we'll be able to return. Assuming we're not all dead, but Daniel always assumed that he would succeed, and that had generally turned out to be true. That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. 
and a famous blue star coat of high magnitude magnificence and a massive Manticoran starship wedge of key lime pie for David Weber, author of Shadow of Victory. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.